Ross, when you start talking numbers, tracking, getting them assigned to me, my tinfoil hat yeah. is glowing <laughs> start green. <getting> paranoid. <laughs> Here you on eight. Welcome to UMass Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. Today, we actually got a special episode for you. Just this last week, I was at a conference called NAEMSP, or the National Association of EMS Physicians. So we thought it would be cool if I actually just kind of talked about some of the presentations that I saw while I was there, as well as, you know, kind of the critical points of those and some posters that I saw that were kind of interesting too. And so Will and I were just going to kind of chat about this and, and hopefully you guys find some interesting information in there as well. Yeah. So I went to the conference this last week. It was, it was great. So the conference includes kind of two and a half days of various lectures. All the lectures were pretty short, 15 to 20 minute kind of that, you know, new trendy adult learning style of lectures on a whole bunch of various different topics. And there were some tracks, uh, some trauma tracks or a, a wilderness track and stuff like that. And so I, I took some notes on some of the lectures that I went to that I found interesting. And I thought, you know, you and I could kind of just go through the, the bullet points that I had and, and we can kind of talk about them a little more. Yeah, that sounds great. A little background for me. Do physicians use this conference to present cutting edge things in the world of EMS or where the ways they're trying to move the needle? Yes. Some of the lectures are stuff that various agencies are doing around the country, like how they're trying to increase retention or what they did when they had surges during COVID and stuff like that. Some are lectures about how do you use data or how do you extract data from your electronic medical record and then create visuals about that to kind of show change or, or implement change. And then there's some posters too. If you did a research project throughout the year, you want to present that as a poster, you can present your findings as a poster too. And I took some pictures of those and we can maybe chat about some of those as well. The conference itself, like I said, is mainly for EMS physicians. So the, the, vast majority of these are physicians who did an EMS fellowship or physicians who were grandfathered in to the EMS board certification. And then there's some EMS providers there as well, like our own Ben Fisher, who joined you for the radio MCI talk. He was actually there with his company, Nemsis, just nice. looking at what research people are doing out there. They talked about maybe presenting some of their own research at a future conference. Before the conference, there's actually a few days of pre-courses leading up to it. And, and one of them is the medical director course, which I went to last year as a, as a fellow, and it's all a hmm. bunch of lectures about how to be an EMS medical director. And so most fellowships send their fellows to that pre-course, which are the three days leading up to this as well. Nice. Cool. Well, yeah, hit me. What'd you learn? Yeah. So the conference actually opened up with kind of a really cool keynote speech. And the keynote was by Kristen Flannery, who is also known on social media as, I believe, Lady Glockenflecken. So she's married to kind of a, a famous social media comedian who's an ophthalmologist who goes by the name Dr. Glockenflecken. 
He's very active on TikTok and Twitter, and most of his stuff is kind of comedy surrounding medicine. And a couple of years ago, kind of in the middle of COVID, he actually suffered a cardiac arrest while asleep in his own bed next to his wife. And so his wife actually called 911 and they played this tape while she was giving this keynote speech. And the 911 operator talked her through performing CPR for 10 minutes. Wow. And so now she's doing a lot of advocacy going around and trying to promote bystander CPR and bystander CPR training, because even though she was married to a medical professional, this was not something she had ever been trained or prepared for in her life. Hmm. But it was, it was incredibly touching. It was incredibly powerful. The 911 tape was chilling, but the 911 operator did a phenomenal job talking her through CPR. And she did a phenomenal job performing CPR for 10 minutes before first responders got there. The fire department showed up. They actually pulled him all the way there. Their bedroom's upstairs. They pulled him all the way downstairs. And, and meanwhile, they had two kids asleep in their rooms while this was going on. Fire department took him all the way downstairs into the living room, continued to perform CPR, actually shocked him and got a rhythm back and took him to the hospital. And I think he spent like three days in the ICU and was discharged completely neurologically intact. Yeah, that's an amazing outcome. Yeah, yeah. An amazing outcome, amazing story, like a testament to dispatch assisted CPR and how effective that and bystander CPR can be. And so, yeah, so she she talked about that. She talked about one of the big things she recounted was her experience as being a loved one for someone that this just happened to. So she showed up to the hospital, but she never actually got to be with him in the hospital because of COVID. This was, Hmm. you know, I believe 2020 when this happened. And so she never actually got to be at his bedside. And she she recounted all the people who were kind of there to help. And so he had, he had a pretty phenomenal ICU nurse that they were very thankful for because that ICU nurse was the one who was able to be at the bedside and kind of tell him what happened and talk him through what had happened when he woke up. She talked about the things that we can do to help family members if they were to ever experience something like this. She talked about providing frequent updates and explaining in lay terms. She talked about how providing written information for her to refer to when she eventually forgot everything because of how stressful it was, how important that can be, as well as giving her the words to use to be able to explain this to others because she in, she ended up becoming you know the intermediary between the healthcare system and the rest of his family. And so empowering her with words to be able to explain it to others, she talked about as a way that we can help family members who experience a similar tragedy. She talked about the things that were hurtful when this occurred. So the big one we already talked about was being separated. And and that was unfortunately due to the circumstances of COVID, but how hard that was for her. She talked about the grim stats about outcome were, were not helpful in her mind. She knew the statistics. She knew this was a devastating thing. And being reminded that few people survive something like this was not helpful in her mind. She said, Providers who had infrequent rushed updates was very stressful for her because she was just wanting to know more. She was wanting to to 
be frequently updated about what was going on. And these updates she's referring to, were these in hospital or out of hospital? These were in hospital. I believe those updates were when she was in the emergency department, actually. Yeah. And when she was in the emergency department, because she wasn't allowed in the, into the emergency department because of COVID, she said they, they had actually put her in the radiology room. And the unfortunate part about being in the radiology room is it's a lead filled room where she she recounted there was no cell phone service. Oh, wow. So yeah. Not only was she cut off from her husband and those taking care of her husband, but she, she didn't even have cell phone service. She was cut off from her family as well. Wow. Uh, yeah. Something that, that I'm thinking about hearing the story that's striking me is I, I was given the advice a long time ago and I've tried to implement it. When you're on scene of a cardiac arrest like that and, and you're giving updates say things even simpler than you think you need to. I was told, and I've liked doing this, you know, we're giving them medicine to try to restart their heart or their heart is not beating, or we shocked their heart to try to get it started. Or, you know, we're breathing for them just as simple as you can keep it whilst having it still be accurate, of course, and not, you know, creating too much false hope. I, I think that that is an important takeaway for any pre-hospital provider. Most people don't know what epi is. They don't know what amiodarone is. They don't know so much of the inside jargon that we use all the time. They have no idea what any of that is. Yeah, absolutely. So she ended up actually writing an article, which I encourage anyone to go check out called The Quiet Place. And this was published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure. And she wrote about just the difficulty that she had communicating after this happened. She felt like she, like I said, didn't have the words to communicate what happened, couldn't feel like she could connect to people. She mentioned a couple of books that helped her through this. One was called in Shock. It's a book written by someone who's actually died three times and kind of wrote about their experiences going through this. And she said that validated a lot of the feelings that she was having. And then another one of those was Life After Cardiac Arrest, The Importance of the Forgotten Patient. And actually that's, that's not a book. That's also an article that was published in Resuscitation, but she found that extremely helpful as well and, and recommended any healthcare provider read that. And it just talks about the forgotten patient being the family member who of that patient who is also experiencing trauma at that same time with regard to what's going on there. This, I believe, was a quote that she pulled out that says, healthcare was designed with diseases at its center, not people, which is to say that it was designed poorly. And just talking about, you know, when we do research, it's often disease-centered, or when we talk about treating patients, it's often disease-centered. But truly, when you talk about the treatment of a patient, you have to take into account what are their goals and wishes with regards to their life? You know, would they even want treatment for whatever disease you're diagnosing them with? And everybody's goals and values are going to be different. And those absolutely need to be taken into account when you're treating a patient. Yeah. Another wise tip I was given by a really senior paramedic one time that I've appreciated. Very practically speaking, you you get on scene and there's this momentum to get the arrest running, right? You're trying to get them hooked up to the monitor. You're trying to establish an airway, venous access, get your meds drawn up. And we, we say those things all the time, but each one of them 
requires fine motor skill and you got to have the the right bag or kit or whatever. This wise paramedic encouraged me once that's done and you have your first moment of like hands in the pockets, go talk to the family member and say, hey, here's what we're doing. It's not looking good or it or this is promising or that's not promising or whatever. What do you think they would have wanted or do you have anything written? You know, check in, use that as a check in about any sort of written will or DNR and to bring that family member into the care. And I've I've always found that helpful. And then you can kind of like re-enter the the arrest with kind of better defined objectives almost. All right. So the next presentation we'll talk about real quick was one from the president of MSF or here known in the States as Doctors Without Border, uh, the president of MSF Japan, actually. And she talks about her trip to Ukraine. And one of the things she found when she visited there was she, she had brought some hand warmers and Hand warmers apparently are a big thing in Japan. I, I guess they, I think they were invented in Japan, actually. She brought some of these and the people of Ukraine that she was visiting with had never seen these before. And they were just marveled by the the magic of it all, if you kind of think about that, and how that really warmed their hearts. And it's And it's amazing how little things like that can really change somebody's outlook. And and we don't always think about the little things that we can do in people's lives to actually have kind of big impacts and and big differences even throughout this kind of traumatic event. So she talked about just that and getting a whole bunch of donations from people in Japan and, and taking those donations to Ukraine and being able to give those to the people. And really just the big take home from it is the little things that we can do in people's lives that can actually have big differences. Yeah, that's a cool story. Another talk that I went to talked about equip, which Equip is using kind of evidence-based medicine to bring about change within EMS. And one of their big things that they talked about was the dangers of lights and sirens. They talk about 5 million calls annually in this country. In this study they did, 85% of those responded with lights and sirens. They talked about the dangers of responding with lights and sirens. And then they talked about studies that looked at of these 85% of calls that responded with lights and sirens, only 6.9% of them actually received any potential life-saving intervention. And so there's a huge cohort in there where we're just increasing our danger to ourselves and to the public by responding in this manner for individuals who aren't going to need Need any sort of life-saving intervention. There's a huge cohort there where we could potentially increase safety of our system as a whole. And what things can we do to implement, you know, dispatch triage, stuff like that. But a big push nationally to try to implement these things and try to limit the amount of times we're using lights and sirens, given the danger that they do present to, to the providers themselves, to the patient they're transporting, as well as to the public they're driving around or through. Yeah, this is something that I'm sure is actually not surprising to anybody that's been in EMS for a while. Can you unpack for me this concept and it's kind of become a buzzword that we're applying evidence-based medicine to something that's not necessarily medicine? 
Yeah, I think I would argue that, you know, the use of lights and sirens should be looked at as any other medicine or any other procedure that we do. It should be looked at as this is a procedure that we're applying to provide benefit to the patient. And so, you know, that's where I would say that I actually do think that this is medicine, that we should we should think about hitting that button turning on those lights and sirens as any other procedure that we do to the the patient. The goal of that is to improve outcomes, but oftentimes we're just doing it because we're scared about what's in front of us, or we think it's a part of the protocol to do it. And we're not thinking about is this, and, and the amount of time that it saves is seconds to minutes for most systems. And so we're not thinking about is seconds to minutes actually going to make a difference in the patient that I have in front of you? And that's really what we should be thinking about. Is this treatment lights and sirens going to make a difference in this patient's outcome? 100% agreement here. That should be the driving force behind any EMS provider's decision to respond or return to the hospital license sirens. Now I know response, most of us don't get a choice, but returning to the hospital, we do. And returning to the hospital with lights and sirens to, you know, air quotes, get their attention. I, th I think that that's a very poor practice. And I think that that actually points towards more systemic issues of communication pathways between an emergency department and their EMS providers and some, some trust between the two and, and, and all of that. Absolutely. What I'd like there to should be a, you know, there should be a system in place for you to be able to say, I am worried about this person. This person is a sick patient and that system should not include just lights and sirens. Yeah. 100% agree. Just speaking from the perspective of an EMS provider, getting that 30 seconds of undivided attention just is super important and, and have people, you know, listen to what you're saying and then, and listen to your concerns. And, and then the, the, the burden is on the EMS provider to then professionally and concisely communicate about your patient to the department. I would also love to hear your thoughts on, I guess I've heard evidence-based medicine as this sort of amorphous, I guess, kind of buzzword. And as that approach gets applied to more things within the field, what does that practically mean? That's, I mean, that's a great question. And I think, you know, evidence-based medicine has been a buzzword for a long time within the hospital. And we're now trying to push that buzzword pre-hospitally. And essentially what that means is if we're doing something do we have evidence to back up either to do the thing or to not do the thing? And so it's encouraging more studies of practices like do lights and sirens save time? And that's what they studied. And they found that it only saves seconds to minutes, doesn't save that much time. And so that's a study they performed to show here's practically what this intervention is doing. And then they looked at, you know, how often during that intervention, are we actually doing anything potentially life-saving? And that's where that 6.9% of the time they responded lights and sirens, they actually did a potential life-saving intervention. And so this is all kind of evidence to inform our care moving forward. One of the things more simply that you can think about is, you know, looking at an asthmatic. 
So we know we can measure the severity of an asthmatic by looking at some respiratory function tests like their FEV. We can measure that pretreatment and then we can give them albuterol and then measure that post-treatment and say, did that albuterol do anything? Because sometimes we just give meds. Mag is a good one. So we give mag and asthma because mag we know is a smooth muscle relaxant. So we hope we hope that it's going to relax the smooth muscles within the bronchioles. And that's something that's just been recently called into question because we just do it on the hope of that theoretical physiology. And they actually looked at giving mag to pediatric patients and they found that it didn't increase outcomes or decrease mortality or decrease length of stay. It's still a little controversial. Some people think mag still may have a role in asthma, but that's an example of how we use evidence to then change and inform our practice moving forward. I think it's also important as this becomes more prevalent, the practice of studying, we'll call them more operational things to decide if they have benefit to the patient. I think it, it's incumbent upon agency leaders and medical directors. I'm, I guess I'm calling you out, Ross, <laughs> to, then, to then do public education around that. Mm -hmm. So from just this presentation, if it's decided that ambulances are going to respond only 6% of the time with their lights and sirens, just for the sake of argument, what that does to public perception and what that would feel like to somebody who's experiencing what they think is an emergency. And that's where I think one of the big disconnects is when we start talking about some of this and even anecdotally as a provider on the street, you race across the city lights and sirens to something that you know doesn't need that kind of response and then pushing up against the expectations of somebody who wanted you there even faster or or wants you to act in a in a certain way because they called the ambulance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. And they talked about that in this talk, not only education to the public, but to your EMS providers too. They, in some of these systems, they tried to implement this. They got a lot of pushback from the EMS providers thinking that they were going to be putting patients in danger by doing this. And just real quick to get the, the numbers, they actually do cite what their goal is for responses. And the goal was less than 30% of the time responding with lights and sirens. And then the goal for transport would be less than 5% of transports to the hospital with, with lights and sirens. And that, that was kind of their national goal metric. But they talked about how it, when they tried to release this, one of the systems, EMS providers actually went to the media and they wrote a news article saying, if your eight-year-old child was shot would you want them to respond without lights and sirens? <laughs> Which is a huge disconnect of what we're saying. We're saying we're, no one is saying we shouldn't respond lights and sirens to that patient. And so absolutely, I think education both on how much time does it actually save versus what are the dangers? What are the risks? What are the people who have been injured or hurt by this? And relating that to when does it work and when does it not work? Or when is it helpful and when is it not helpful? 100% yeah. education to the providers as well as the public is needed. Yeah, couldn't agree more. All right, let's move on. This next one was entitled Teaching the Unwritten Objectives. And this talk was talking about the importance of a medical director's role at the beginnings of an EMS provider's education. So 
when they're in EMT school or when they're in paramedic school. So not, not a medical director role just at when they come to your agency after years of experience, but how it's important to actually get involved in the, in the beginning of those education within the school itself. The lecturer talked about the importance of this is because it can create a culture of improvement where the physician is kind of a coach, where the physician can set high expectations and goals and give feedback on where you are, where you want to be and give direction on kind of how to get there, how you can kind of exemplify that, that learning is a lifelong reality. One of the quotes that I love, she said, excellence is the goal but life learning is the reality. She also talked about the importance of having those students actually come observe her in the emergency department. She said she likes to have them come observe her so they can see her look stuff up. They can see her struggle with answers to questions of, oh, wait, what's the dose of that medicine? Or or what what, what exactly am I supposed to do here again? What's the appropriate antibiotic? And, and watch her kind of struggle with those questions and have to look those things up and make mistakes. And they can see that she does that on a daily basis on shift and can kind of normalize that and how that lifelong learning can, can look throughout, you know, a normal shift. Yeah. I mean, reading between the lines on this, this is basically building a roadmap for how to lead the people who she's leading the EMS providers. Your agency may have people in leadership roles, whether official or unofficially, in a leadership role, the the medical director has a lot of leadership potential over those providers. And so simple things like relationship, they're massive. If you don't know the doctor under which you're practicing, then that's a problem. So, yeah, I mean, I hear her, you know, leading by example, setting the setting the standard, showing that it's okay to struggle, that it's okay to look things up, that there's going to be times where you don't know what to do and how you work through that. I mean, I think that when the person at the top or near, very, very near the top models the culture that they want and the behavior they want, everyone below will follow suit. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The next talk I went to actually talked about the interesting challenge of defining who is an EMS provider. There's currently no accepted definition and the numbers range from there's a couple hundred thousand EMS providers to there's almost a million EMS providers in this country. And it just depends on what definition you use. It talks about how the challenge in defining EMS makes it harder for us to look at things like turnover rates or how to bring up standardization or changes within this country with regards to EMS as a whole. They made a comment of maybe adopting a national identification number, similar to how NPs, PAs, physicians, MDDOs have, everybody gets what's called an NPI or a national provider identification number. And that can help track some of these statistics, which then can help implement change when you look at certain things. And so that was just an interesting thing to think about and talk about. Ross, when you start talking numbers, tracking, getting them assigned to me, my tinfoil hat is glowing (laughs) green. Paranoid. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to come and start taking your guns. 
Yeah. <laughs> my, my Take my laryngoscope. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, the next lecture I went to was a video review of intubations and how you can use video laryngoscopy as an educational tool. And so I, I think this was really cool. I think, you know, the debate about VL... DL aside, which is better. I think, you know, it's, there's some debate and, and certainly to date, there's been no patient centered data available to tell us if a video device is superior to a direct device. But one thing that a video laryngoscopy can give us that direct can't is the ability to review that and teach that on the back end. And so they talked about implementing VL review and how you can sit down with the paramedics and you can talk about, okay, you see you're a little deep here and that's why you don't have a great view or, or your little right of midline as you, as you review that your little right of midline. So next time you want to make sure you go straight down the center of the tongue or you're identifying your landmarks as you go down. So you can tell, and you can see, you know, your right of midline, cause you can see this landmark here, which is over here. And when you review that, it gives you ability to kind of see how you did and, and improve and get better on how you're doing. And so I, I think that's a cool application. They talked about one of the importance, if you're going to do this, is getting a device that automatically starts recording when you turn it on. So that's not another mental piece that the provider has to think about when they do this. But you know, I think it's a great educational tool moving forward as, as more of these handheld video devices become available. Something that somebody told me a while ago that I have appreciated is any, any chance you get to look in someone's oropharynx, larynx, trachea, do it. So if you're in the emergency department and they're intubating somebody on video laryngoscopy, get a look at the screen because everyone's epiglottis is different. Everyone's airway is different. And so yes, it doesn't replace you actually being the one performing the intubation. It's still a look at the anatomy and it's still a look at what the person intubating is seeing. And so I also think a plug for our Instagram, that's something that we try to do on Instagram frequently is, is just show some video laryngoscopy videos because every one of those looks at anatomy potentially increases your Rolodex of of what you've seen. And I think that this is a cool idea to review this, especially in systems where, well, any system, but especially those where your opportunities are less frequent. It's like, hey, provider A got a got an innovation last week. We're going to all take a look at the video and see what they saw. Yeah, 100%. This isn't just helpful for the intubator reviewing the case afterwards. It's helpful for the entire system who gets to review that and learn from each other at the same time. I think that's great. They they talked about the study they did kind of pre-post implementation of doing a video review like this. And their first pass success went from 44% pre-implementation to 88% post-implementation. And so they doubled their first pass success by just doing these video reviews and learning from each other. That's that's a pretty drastic increase. It may not be relatable to your system per se, but I think it does show that doing this type of video review can only be helpful. I would also be curious to know if there were other aspects to their approach that they improved upon or streamlined or created checklists around when they rolled out this video review process as well. That's a dramatic yeah. 
increase in first pass success. No, and that's a good point. You know, just because they saw this increase doesn't mean that it was due to watching the videos itself. They obviously said, this is a thing we're going to address. And they went on tackling it and created focus towards tackling it. And so you don't know if, say, you just implemented weekly trainings on intubating without any video assistance, if you wouldn't see a similar increase in outcomes. I don't know, but I think the video piece can only help and not hurt. I agree. I think there's constant resurging conversation in EMS about intubation versus not intubation, supraglottic airway or not. I, I think those conversations have to be had after we've attempted to train people really, really well at what we deem as the the best means to manage the airway, right? Yeah. For that system. Yeah. If you're leadership staff says we're going to do video laryngoscopy, then let's train on it hard so that we feel good at it. Then let's determine if it's the right thing to do Yeah, yeah. <laughs> before we start taking away equipment and skills. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. I think we'll go ahead and pause there. Call this part one of NAEMSP wrap up. And next week, we'll go ahead and release a bonus episode, part two, where we'll talk about some more pearls I learned from this last week. See you then.